hey guy, uh, what, what's the deal with the knife? And he was the same age as me, which was 55 at the time. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, my mom made me bring that. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Hey, hope you had a good weekend. Um, one thing I wanted to say before we got started was uh, I'm sorry for the audio quality of this show. Um, just not a great connection and uh, did the best we could with it, but it's still a really good episode. Also, if you'd like to call us and leave us a voicemail about you know a story you've had happen over the summer or uh, something interesting that happened recently with the outdoors or with adventure sports, give us a call. We'd love to hear about it. You can leave us a voicemail at 812-MAIL-POD. That is also 812-624-5763. We'd love to hear some stories, and we're definitely willing to put them on the podcast, so call us. Also, we are on our way to making the goal of having 50 patrons by the end of November. So if you've been thinking about becoming a patron of the show, please do it. Um... You know, this show takes time and energy to create, and we would love to keep producing it at an excellent level, and you can be a big part of that. So thanks for your support. Don't forget to review us on iTunes, share us with your friends, and uh, let's get this thing going. So back to the show. Welcome to the show. Today we have a pretty extraordinary story, uh, Craig Christensen. He would, he would tell you that he doesn't have a story or he, that he isn't extraordinary, but the man is 125 miles from cycling 100,000 miles. Is that right, Craig? Yes. Awesome. Well, by the way, welcome to the show. Thank you. Awesome. So, you know, you've done some, some awesome stuff. You've biked across America. Um, you've done tons of... Uh, of uh, of trips the the ragbri you've backpacked the west highlands away uh, in scotland um you've spent time backpacking in new zealand um tons and tons of bike trips obviously to get a hundred thousand miles uh, but you would what would you say you're just kind of a, a casual adventure yeah one thing i like my wife and i like to call ourselves is the perfect happy medium you know we listen to your podcast of these people that are, you know, rode the ocean and, and done the polar caps on skis and just the list goes on and on. But we're, we're in our upper forties and fifties. And I think one of the messages we have out there is, is there is such thing as a happy medium out there. And we feel like we're kind of ticking a lot of the boxes on that to, and hopefully can inspire people our age that they can still get out and do that if you're in reasonably good shape and you're motivated. It's never too late, never too late to start this stuff. Oh, absolutely, man. I, I totally agree. Um, a lot of people feel they're you know just so far behind in, in achieving things like this, but you'll you'll realize that these types of, of adventures are not done in a day. They are done over time, and when you when you take one day out of all the miles you've pedaled. It doesn't feel like you're doing much, but when you look back, it's extraordinary what you can accomplish over just a few years, you know? Yes. So you rode your bike across America back in 95, is that right? 
Yes. Why don't you tell us about that trip? What was that about? Okay, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, I want to kind of put some uh, plug out there to my parents. Okay. Um, when I was 12 years old, my dad worked for a company that built fiberglass canoes and sailboats and campers and things. And one day he brought home a 12-foot fiberglass canoe for me. And this would have been back in the early 70s and back in a time when, you know, we were fortunate enough to have a lot longer leash than kids do today. And he would take me out in the country to a local river and he would drop me off at 12 years old by myself. And he'd say, when you get tired of paddling, just walk to the nearest farmhouse and call me and I'll come get you. Yeah, it just doesn't happen nowadays. And then when I was 14, uh, the Ragbri came through our town as a pass-through town. It's uh, That's the Register's annual great bike ride across Iowa that's been going on for since uh, the early 70s. And when I was 14, it came through my town, and I asked my mom if I could jump on my bike and join it. And, and she said, of course not. There's, there's too many hoodlums. And uh, it really really bummed me out. So the next day I came up with an alternative plan. I, I uh, figured out a three-day bicycle tour by myself where the first day was an 80-mile trip to my grandma's house. The second day was a 50-mile ride to my sister's house. And then the third would have been back home again, about 40-some miles. And she said, yes, yeah, that's fine. You can go by yourself. <laughs> So I was on a 38-pound 30, bike carrying a backpack strapped to my seat rails with twine and a floor pump, and, and I did it at 14 years old by myself, and I looked back at that, and it all it's all happened from there because my parents, you know, just they never worried. They've always encouraged me. Uh, my wife's parents are the same way. And, and uh, so anyway, uh, then years later, uh, my previous wife and I uh, were going to do, we started doing rag bris back then in 84, I think was our first first one. And then in 95, getting up to that ride across America was uh, a columnist for the Des Moines Register, Chuck Offenberger, said he was going to ride across America. And was there anybody out there that wanted to, to come along? And I said to my wife at the time, I said, I'm going. If you want to come with, great. And luckily she did. Uh, and we had a seven-year-old son at the time. So we figured out a way that he could go along, too, in a support vehicle at seven years old. And so that was called the Iowa 150. And the 150 was in reference to the celebration of the state sesquicentennial. And so, yeah, there ended up being about uh, 300 of us. And uh, it was 5,000 miles and 100 days. And along the way, our role was to promote the state of Iowa, whether we were from there or not. Our, that was our role. So each day we would, you know, put in our plugs for Iowa everywhere we were. And we developed a, the group of 300 people. Was To this day, we're still keeping touch. And there's reunions. And there was a documentary made on it at the time uh called i believe it's called the great american bike ride it was produced by tim crescenti who went on to bigger things too he even has a part in uh 
producing one of those shows on TV, the one with Terry Bradshaw and Henry Winkler, the Better Late Than Never. So he, his uh, career kind of used that as a springboard too. And uh, so anyway, um, like I said, my seven-year-old son got to go along and experience that. And uh, we made it to D.C. And, and then uh, that, like I said, to this day, we're still keeping in touch with all those people. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, that uh, doing anything like that is going to build a community. I mean, it's so developmental of an experience. But I wanted to go back to when you, when you were fourteen. You 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 weren't we, we went bike touring before bike touring was really a big thing. That was quite a while ago now. And it's kind of funny. Your mother wouldn't let you ride in that big ride, but she let you go by yourself a few years later. <laughs> yeah, we still laugh about that a yeah. lot. I remember. I had my first bike trip, I, w- I was 20, actually, 21 when I came back, and it was from Alaska down to Florida, and when I got back, the next day, I wanted to ride, I got in my mom's house, and I wanted to ride to my dad's house, they live about three miles apart, well, I was like, mom, I want to ride my bike um, to dad's house this morning, she goes, you can't do that, it's dangerous, <laughs> and I'm like, I <laughs> yep. just rode 5,300 miles <laughs> across <laughs> Canada in the wilderness, and I can't ride three miles through a little town in Florida. It was funny. So parents, man, they, they yeah, you, it, it's funny the the some of the logic sometimes. But you know they love us, and that's what's important. So so you did that first ride, and you did the 150 mile ride that was celebrating the sequentennial. Well, that was 5,000 miles. It was just caught called the Iowa 150. Yeah, a lot of people confuse that. They think it's one of those 150 rides for MS or whatever. It's like, no, it was... Yeah, okay. Yeah, it was 5,000. Yeah. So, man, and, and so what? how was that experience for you as a family with a seven-year-old? Oh, absolutely unbelievable. Along the way, they had, they had kind of got a, guy, a 16-year-old guy to go along as the team, the group mechanic, and his name was... Uh, I want to talk about this guy a minute. His name was Charlie Whitmack. He was 16 years old, and he was going along as as our mechanic. But being a 16-year-old, he he was kind of goofy, and I helped him out a lot of times with the bike repair. And, and uh, you're probably cheap labor, huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyway, um, Charlie then went on to become the first Iowan to summit Everest. Wow. And yeah. And uh, I had mentioned in uh, one of my emails that that's another guy you need to contact because, you know, his story is incredible, too. But one of the things Charlie uh, has told people in his uh, motivational talks and TED Talks, those kinds of things, is is one of his themes is choose your own Everest. And uh, my wife and I really echo that a lot, that, you know, everybody thinks they can't they can't do what he's doing or they can't do what we're doing. And Charlie's message is choose your own Everest, which means, you know, if your Everest is to go out and, and run a 5k, then, then great, go for it. And, uh, he's one of my inspirations to this day that when we start feeling like, uh, you know, what we're doing is not that big a deal. We always look back at Charlie's words, you know, choose your own Everest. Yeah, it's great words to live by. So what's your Everest? Well, I guess, you know, every every year, every 
year it's a different like this year it was the west highland way you know and and uh hardcore backpackers that have been there and done everything would say ah that's not that tough but you know it was it was very difficult and it was our everest and we're very proud of it so that's awesome yeah so yeah what was the west highland way like i've I've actually not too familiar with that what is that that's a hundred mile trail in the highlands of scotland that goes from glasgow northwest to fort william on the west coast of scotland uh we were looking through backpacker magazine and it was listed as one of those you know must do hikes in in the world that's really world class and uh so we just on a whim chose to do that and uh, we just did that this uh august it's just it was incredible the um like i said it was a hundred miles but we threw in a side trip where we climbed uh ben nevis which is the highest peak in in the uk but other than that the weather was rainy and cold and windy and there were days where we were walking through the moors which is like the most uninhabited area of scotland in what comes across as the most miserable weather you've ever seen and you know we were laughing and having a good time <laughs> the whole whole trip was just great and i tell people well it helps when you have good gear we had really good rain gear and and that you know we just live for that stuff where other people would uh probably avoid that yeah avoid pretty that miserable honestly but i know what you i know what you're talking about it's that type yeah. two fun you know yeah, the other thing that's really unique about, well, not unique so much, but one thing we've noticed in uh, on the West Highland Way, uh, Scotland still allows wild camping on private land. They're, uh, they're fiercely protective of their right to walk anywhere in their country. And there are a few areas in the national parks where they've had to clamp down on it because of, you know, bad practices by tourists but uh for the most part um yeah you can camp anywhere and once we finally figured that out it really really lowered the stress level where we knew at the end of the day if there wasn't a a designated camping area there were these um, unbelievable campsites right out of the pages of any great magazine and you know you had everything you needed a rushing river to filter water from trees to break the wind occasionally and and uh good people around you and it was just phenomenal oh man that's that sounds incredible you have any stories from that trip something interesting that happened uh you know on that trip um there weren't any really crazy stories you know i got to eat haggis you know and if people don't know what ha- haggis is it's kind of the national dish of scotland it's kind of a meatloaf made out of sheep innards, and and, uh, it was quite good. We uh, learned some other terms from the locals uh, that we laughed about a lot called faffing, faffing about. We were hiking along with these two old English gentlemen who one was always complaining how his partner was always stopping to adjust his gear and whatnot, and he called that faffing. And uh, so sure enough, now we use that term if the you know, one of us is not moving along like they should because they keep wanting to stop, to stop faffing about. Uh, we were out in the middle of the nowhere one day, and we came upon this bar. It was called a Walker's Bar, and I went in there and uh, got to sample some uh, scotch, which the 
amount of scotch over there is absolutely mind blowing. You know, that's <laughs> right. They're, they're really known for it. It's and uh, this guy, <laughs> yeah, took that uh, took that first sip and thought, yeah, yeah, that's not bad, not bad at all. It's pretty smooth. And then took a se- second sip and thought, nah, that's whiskey. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny, man. That sounds like an incredible trip. And oh, another another thing about that: mm-hmm. when we first first got there, we did have a hotel the first night to get our ducks in a row. And uh, there was a little lady sitting behind the counter of the hotel that was a clerk, and she was just like a little Mrs. Doubtfire. And uh, she saw us walk in with our backpacks, and we were carrying about thirty pounds each. And and uh, she asked us what we were doing, and we told her we were going to do the West Highland Way. And she goes, are you carrying all your gear? And this story loses something because I can't do her accent. But uh, when she, we said we were doing the whole thing, carrying all our gear, she said, oh, you would be proper walkers. And I huh. thought that was kind of a neat term that we were the fact that because there's a lot of tour companies and a lot of day hikers where they haul your gear from place to place to place. And uh, but she called us proper walkers, and we got a kick out of that because when you know when I talk about being the happy medium, we we look at those and hike your own hike. That's you know another saying I'm sure you've heard of is when you we see those people that are using the tour companies and and having their stuff hauled for them. We I don't criticize those people one not one second because we we look at it and say yeah that'll be us that'll be us someday, but we'll yeah. keep on. We'll keep on doing it our way for now as long as we can, even though we tend to be uh, surrounded by 20-somethings. But, you know, we're going to keep doing it as long as we can. Absolutely. And, you know, that's a, that's a great point you mentioned. Not, not everyone's where you are and um, either below you or above you. It, I, I take a lot of people backpacking or through uh, – I rent a lot of people gear – and a lot of people, it's their first time. They don't know anything. They, they they need basically a whole course on how to backpack, outdoor ethics, uh, leave no trace principles. And our trails that we send people on aren't extreme because you want people to ease in. You want them to fall in love with it. And if they're getting out there, I don't I don't care if someone's carrying around. If they're getting out there and they're able to see it, you don't know what that starts in them to carry on later in life. You know, when I first started going out in the woods, some expert would look at me and say, wow, what an idiot. But, you know, I didn't know anything. But as I learned and as I grew this appreciation and love, um, you got to realize that other people aren't where you are. And I think that's awesome, though. But it is cool to be a proper hiker versus one that's getting your gear carried for you. Yeah, and I got to give my wife Susie. I'm re- been remarried for about ten years now, and, and uh, or eight years, and uh, I got to give her all the credit in the world because uh, when I, we met, I was 100% a cyclist and was into the touring, and uh, she was a backpacker, and so she introduced me to the backpacking, and I introduced her to the cycling, and so now we try to balance. Like for instance, on the Ragbrise. We tend to go every other year now instead of every year just because we decide we go, no, in those odd years, let's find a big backpacking trip to do. So, and we both love both sports. So, that's awesome. If you want to get into backpacking but you're not sure where to start, go check out campcrate.net. 
Camp Crate can help you plan the backpacking trip of a lifetime and supply you with all the rental gear you need. Simply go online and choose your gear and your itinerary. Camp Crate will then ship your gear anywhere in the U.S. When your trip is finished, use the pre-printed return label to ship the gear back. It's that easy. Camp Crate. Rent. Explore. Return. So what's uh, what's some of the trips that's on your bucket list for backpacking? For well, for backpacking, we'd we'd like to we'd like to hit the John Muir Trail. That's that's a goal of ours. We'd like to do maybe some section hiking on the AT. We'd like to hit the north. Neither one of us have been to the northwest, like up in the Cascades or up in that area. And the funny thing is, we're both scared of bears. Right, right. <laughs> we are trying so hard to to learn how to not be scared of bears. Well, I said, well, what we should do, we need to go up to the northwest, and we actually need to hire a guide, someone that, that is familiar with bears, and just spend a, a, you know, a three-day trip or something with a guide and learn just how to carry yourself, how to not be afraid of bears. Because we've, we've hiked in bear country. We know how to hang a bear bag and, and use all the precautions and carry bear spray. But, you know, until you're really around someone that's really good at it, you, we, we feel like we need that to, to learn, you know. Yeah, man, I've, we've encountered a lot through our bike touring and backpacking as well. And uh, grizzly country. One night in my tent, I had a grizzly bear come right up to my tent. And oh my! I, you, I, I mean, all I could do was lay there and and not scream or cry, which might have done a little of both. But yeah, I, I don't think you, especially in the Northwest, man. We just we just came back from a trip there. Last weekend, and holy cow, I would highly recommend y'all getting out there to Olympic National Park, North Cascades, or anywhere around Mount Rainier. Because yeah. you have this incredibly lush forest, the snow capped peaks, and the ocean all together. It, it, with all the animals involved in all of those ecosystems, it's incredible. Yeah, the uh, Scotland and New Zealand trips were both really uh, like temperate rainforests and that's what interests us about the northwest is because it kind of seems the same way they seem like temperate rainforests and and we like that style yeah that would be perfect for you so you've already seen some of that in new zealand then yeah when we were riding across america in 95 we were in yellowstone and there was a father and a 14 year old daughter with us and uh one night he left his back it wasn't a backpack, it was his uh, duffel bag outside of his tent. And in the middle of the night, he, he heard some rustling around and he opened up the fly of his tent and he was literally face-to-face with a grizzly bear. So he zipped the tent back shut and wondered what he was going to do with his 14-year-old daughter. And, uh, of course, eventually what the bear did was dragged the uh, duffel bag away so he could tear into it and that was the end of the story except the next morning they got up and were examining their contents of their bag and he had a a big bottle of uh, vitamin supplements in there that the bear got into and so then we thought great now we got a bear all hopped up on speed out there (laughs) (laughs) so man you are uh you said you're 125 miles away 
from a hundred thousand miles on bike, and I kind of wanted to ask you about that. There's there's a book worth of stories in a hundred thousand miles of riding your bike. Um, first of all, you must be pretty good at keeping details because to know that you're only that far away, you must have been keeping pretty good track over the years. Yeah, back in I think 1983, give or take 84, I think it was the they came out with the first digital bicycle odometer and my wife bought that for my birthday and so I decided to start keeping track and I have just diligently kept track year after year down to the mile with no goal absolutely no goal in mind just I keep track for keeping track sake I'm kind of a numbers guy and so it's been 43 states nine countries uh, 30 rag rise Cross America once, then from Florida to Iowa in 2015, the Rhine River, uh, Euro Velo 15 in Europe. So, uh, and then many, many, many different states. I used to have two friends where every year we'd pick a different state and we'd do a week long self self contained tour. Our style over the years has been to wing it. You know, which gets is getting more and more frustrating every year. Oh, really? And Why? I've, well, I've heard people on your podcast talk about this same thing. Where in this day and age of these reservation systems, where it it used to be, you know, you could just roll into a campground anywhere, or if you didn't want a wild camp or, or stealth camp, I should say. And you could just you could go anywhere, plot a map in the morning, and just say, "Okay, let's go here, here, here." And you could. And now it's just getting so frustrating because you roll into places. Nope, we don't have any room. We're all booked up because of these online reservation systems. And it it's kind of been frustrating to dealing with that. But we won't give up. No, I, I agree with you. We we tried to book some campsites in Big Sur a few months ago, and everything at literally dozens and dozens and dozens of campgrounds everything was booked up for months and i thought you can't even plan to go somewhere without uh, then you just have to i don't know car camp or something or or figure out some sort of creative solution and it is frustrating definitely i i definitely get that (laughs) Yeah, when we were biking from Florida to Iowa, we were going through Missouri along the Katy Trail, and we stopped at a campground, and they told us that in Missouri that there's a, there's a law that says if you roll into a campground on a bicycle and they're booked up, they have to provide a spot for you. Oh, man. Which was really, really nice. Yeah, knowing that. no kidding. Because And they do that for common sense reasons. If you're on a bicycle and it's say, 15 miles to the nearest town, and it, you're rolling in at dark, they, they actually realize it's not safe or convenient to have to turn you away and make you ride back on a highway in the dark to, to find a place, you know? That's, that's great. Yeah, and if they can, if they can maintain some walk-up um, campground camp uh, permits or whatever it is, if it's a backpacking route, if they can just have a handful of those for people that just want to show up. Yeah, I think exactly. That's, I think that's ideal. And in Europe, in Europe, we ran into that all the time. In Germany, especially in Germany, France, and the Netherlands, that a lot of times the campgrounds we'd roll into were more like permanent RV 
types where people set them there for the entire summer and go there on weekends. We ran into those a lot, but every single one we were ever in, when we'd come in on a bicycle, they'd say, oh, no, we'll find a spot for you. And they would they would find a spot for us. It might have just been a little patch of grass, but but very, very accommodating. But then Europe's a much more of a bicycle culture, so, you know. Yeah, I, I book a lot of permits for, for backpacking trips, and you have to do a lot of research on different parks. And there's a lot of parks that will provide the same amount of permits that you can book online. They'll have the same amount reserved only for walk-up. So it, they split it like that, and which is very, very helpful. Yes, um, yeah. Hopefully that'll continue to grow as places get booked up. If you have money and have the time. and no, I, I, Honestly, I can't plan more than a month in advance. You might be different, but I, I, I honestly don't plan trips out incredibly detailed. I, I, I like to wing it, but yeah, it does bite exactly. to the butt quite often. <laughs> yeah. And you have to have, like, you know, I go with my wife and we both have good attitudes that, that winging it is still the best way and is the most fun. And mm-hmm. does it cause stress? Yes, it causes stress at times, but it's still, you know, knowing that you can go wherever you want. The thing that's scary is the size of the RVs just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and bigger <now. laughs> yeah, yeah, they killing machines is what I hear some bike tourers call them. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, you know, the rent the rentable ones where you know you go from driving a, a Prius for your for your everyday commute, and then you go to rent one of these giant white RVs that are huge. It's it can yeah. be pretty dangerous. Yeah. So on the hundred thousand miles, man, tell me what most of those miles were. Was it training? Was it uh, just casual riding? Not casual, but daily riding. Was it trips? Well, in the 80s, I lived in South Texas, and bicycle racing was really, really big at that time. So back then, it was a lot of hardcore uh, road bike training, racing. And then then I kind of started getting away from that and more into the self-contained touring. And, uh, and But other than that, commuting, I commuted. I was a school teacher for 26 years, and I commuted to work. Uh, it was... 13 miles round trip to work almost every day. So that really was a big chunk there. And then, of course, I'd use summers to bite off the big chunks on on tours. So I was going to ask you, is that is that what your day job was to provide all this uh, freedom and, and ability to do adventures teaching? Uh, yeah. Um, I was a elementary classroom and then PE teacher. And uh, so, yeah, I did my best to try and inspire the kids to get out and do that kind of stuff too wow and you know is that what you retired from teaching yes teaching mm-hmm. that's awesome I mean, my wife my wife's an elementary school teacher this was all in south texas right on the mexican border so oh. then when i yeah i retired in 2014 and my wife's a nurse and she decided to take a year off and we decided to travel for a year so we were naturally deciding, trying to decide where to go first, what countries to do. And I told her, I said, well, you know, I know all the stories about how great third world countries are and how wonderful the people are. And I said, I don't doubt that for one second. But after living in South Texas, one of the countries where <laughs> I said, first of all, I want to go where I don't have to fight the language. 
because I've spent 30 years fighting the language with Spanish, even though, you know, it wasn't that bad. And then uh, the other thing, living in South Texas, it's similar to Australia in that everything outside wants to kill you, whether it's a plant or an animal, everything wants to kill you. So I said, we're, we said, she said, well, how about Australia? And I said, no. I'm tired of, of snakes and creepy crawlies. I want to go somewhere. So then we said, well, let's go to New Zealand. They don't have any indigenous, you know, uh, big animals or, or mean things. And and so so that's how we chose that. And uh, so we did the some of the great walks in New Zealand. Um, I think there's like nine of them. We chose three. We'd already done a couple backpacking trips and where we'd made absolutely every mistake in the book. And so we were starting to get a little more uh, seasoned. So we went to Queenstown and used that as a base camp. And then we spent a month over there doing the separate Great Walks. And if people aren't familiar with that, just Google Great Walks of New Zealand. And it's just absolutely incredible, the experiences there. And... One funny story we had over there was uh, when we're in between the backpacking trips, we would stay at a hostel in Queenstown, and like the the hostels are filled with world traveling twenty somethings. And uh, the one hostel we were lucky enough to get a private room, but to get to the bathroom, you had to go through the lounge area, and we called that running the gauntlet. Because, you know, here I was 55 at the time and my wife was 46. And so we were quite a bit older than the, than the 20-somethings. And so it was kind of stressful running the gauntlet through the lounge. And uh, so in the middle of the night, one night, I had to get up to use the restroom. And uh, I'm walking through the lounge and they're playing Monopoly. And there was probably half a dozen kids, I'll call them, playing Monopoly from all over the world, and I, as I'm walking by, I'm thinking, see, this is what's right with the world. we got this really cool lounge with people from all over the world, and they're playing Monopoly. So I go to the restroom, and, I, and on the way back, I'm walking through the same area, and I'm listening to them. You know how when you play Monopoly, and you're losing, and you're running out of properties, and you start uh, bartering for with your other playing partners on yeah. to try and stay alive. Mm-hmm. And I noticed they were uh, bartering with bags of weed. <laughs> <laughs> and I just laughed to myself and said, see, that is right. That's what's right with the world today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah it was hilarious. Oh, so. man. Yeah, man. It's, uh, you know, y- y- there's horror stories out there of, of bad experiences and hostels and Everyone kind of does their own thing, and and you'll realize so many people are just so kind-hearted and want to enjoy the experience just like you do, no matter what their age. Yeah, and that's the theme I hear everywhere. Just all your podcasts, the theme is always the same. The people, the people, the people are always so wonderful. I I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned from uh, bike touring and backpacking is that the world is not as bad as a lot of a lot of media makes it seem um right person person to person i've stayed with people in the south people in the north uh you know democrats republicans extremes in every way christians atheists and 
people obviously think differently with their ideals, but when it comes to treating people uh, face-to-face, everybody treats you the same with respect, with curiosity, and with kindness. No matter who yeah. their background, I realize it doesn't really matter. Everyone, when it comes to face-to-face, people people just love each other. Yeah. The, uh, over the years, I've traveled by myself, traveled with other guys, traveled with my wife. But one thing I've noticed over the years is if you throw a female into the group, whether it's just you and your wife or whatever, <clears throat> we get treated way better. And my theory on that is when when I travel with a couple of friends, I had Paul and Dave, you know, we had, we'd get three, four days growth of beard on and look like we'd call what we have the 10-mile stare in a 10-foot room when you roll into town. And people look at you a little hesitantly, but yet when my wife would go with us, we'd get the red carpet rolled out for us everywhere. And I always thought, you know, I think when they see a female, that immediately to most makes you less threatening. And uh, we used to have a game we'd play on bike tours, uh, my friends Paul and Dave and I, and it was called, uh, not a game, but we started noticing that when the three of us would roll into a town, there was always, and I hate to use this phrase, but there was always a town loony, an eccentric person, maybe homeless or whatever. And we started noticing that we would attract the town loony before anyone else. So then we started having a point system for the entire tour of who would attract the most town loonies. And we had a good laugh about that. They always said a lot of those trips, I was traveling on a single recumbent which wasn't fair because they said I myself was looked like a town loony on a recumbent. So <laughs> they, they were protesting that. So, <laughs> Oh yeah, man. I, I, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. These small towns out in the middle of nowhere. If there's somebody out there wandering around and they see you and you're on a bike, they're going to come talk to you. And yes, gonna, they are. They're going to want to hang out because you know, you're, you're exposed to the elements just like they are. And, uh, I've seen it dozens of times myself too, man. And, and honestly, it a lot of times it makes a pretty good story, depending on what happens. Yeah, and when we were coming from Florida up through the Panhandle, and I think uh, we eventually got to the Natchez Trace, and we joined up with a solo guy that was riding from Baton Rouge or from New Orleans to San Francisco. So we rode with him for like two or three days. And he was pulling a Bob trailer behind his bike, and right on top of his bag, there was a a knife. It was a Bear Grylls brand hunting knife still in the package. And it was one of those plastic packages that are absolutely impossible to open. You know what I'm Yeah, and so the first day we met him, we said, hey, guy, uh, what's the deal with the knife? And he was the same age as me, which was 55 at the time. And he looks at me and goes, yeah, my mom made me bring that. (laughs) (laughs) And we laughed and we said, oh, that is hilarious. He goes, we go, and it's in that plastic that's absolutely impossible to open. So, you know, you're going to have a guy that's threatening you and you're going to go, hold on, hold on, hold on a second. I got to get this knife open. (laughs) And so... 
He said, yeah, my mom made me bring it for protection. We laugh because, you know, people ask you that all the time. What are you taking for protection? And uh, one thing we heard somewhere, it's a good answer. We said, um, our wits. Our wits. Oh, <laughs> yeah. man. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, mamas don't change, do they? No matter how old you are, mamas ain't going to change. That's right. I tell you, man, that's that's a good point. Everyone. I'm from I'm from Florida. And uh, a lot of people I know carry a gun around just everyday use. And everyone, everyone asks, what are you doing for protection? I remember one time I was at the Canadian border and they were like, do y'all have any weapons on you? It was me and my friend touring. And I was like, nope, nothing. Like we got a pocket knife. And he goes, you don't have anything, bear spray, anything. I said, we were in college. We were broke. I said, nope, we don't have anything in the border patrol agent in Canada was like, well, you need something. There's grizzly bears out there. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> My wife's Canadian, so I joke about that all the time when we cross the border to go up there. We go up there a lot. And uh, I always said they're more interested in uh, illegal fish than they are marijuana. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. You're from Florida, huh? Because the Florida trip, wow, that was an eye-opener there. That's one interesting yeah, state. In, but, in uh, what way? <laughs> just, well, for one thing, it was incredibly unsafe. We called it the trying to get across through Florida on as far as, uh, as far as bike safety? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was just, yeah, it was it's so one of the worst, one of the worst states for, for, for cycling. Yeah, now the people were fine. I didn't. We never had a problem with the people at all. They were all good. But uh, just the trying to in the morning, we'd get up and we'd kiss each other and say good luck. I hope we make it to the end of the day. But uh, one of our favorite Florida stories is, uh, and you may have to edit this out because it, this is way funnier if I don't hold back on this. But uh, all right, go for it. We were out in the middle of nowhere in the Panhandle. And we're riding along through the country, and there's a, uh, every now and then there's a mobile home. And so we're riding by this mobile home, and out in the front was a guy with a pickup truck with the hood up on the pickup truck, and he was uh, working on the engine. And while he was working on the engine, his wife or whoever was sitting on the stoop with like a 10-year-old kid running around the yard, and as we're riding by in the morning, beautiful morning, we hear the wife yell at the husband. She yells, it was my mom was on meth and your dad was on crack. And he replies to her, no. He says, my dad was on crack and your meth and your mom was on crack. And she goes, no, it was the other way around. Get it right, Oh my god! <laughs> and so my wife, my wife, being a oh, white <laughs> Canadian that she is, she puts her head down and just stares straight ahead. Oh and, man! And I'm right behind her, waving at him, "Good morning." <laughs> yeah. Oh my dude, that my wife lived up in the Panhandle and St. George Island for a few years, three, four years, and yeah. That that place is called the Forgotten Coast for a reason. You will yeah. have trailer parks on the beach with some characters about like that story, just just living their life right on the ocean. Like it's unbelievable. Yeah. You've never seen anything like it out there. Um, that's hilarious, man. One thing I've noticed is bike touring creates a lot more stories for me because 
the the people in the towns that you have to go through so so often and uh, the amount of people you can come across in a day seems to increase because you're moving much quicker and there's also normal travelers on the road what's some yeah. other stories that you uh you had from bike touring um that the the florida the florida to iowa trip we used adventure cycling oh, routes yeah. yep we had a tough time with those. The The maps ha- have incredible information, absolutely incredible information. They were so helpful. They're so colorful. They're detailed. They're waterproof, all that stuff. But the problem we had with their routes is, and it's no fault of theirs, is because of the problem with texting and driving, every state is starting to add these narrow rumble strips along the shoulder Mm, of the road to protect from texting. And what we noticed on roads that had, say, a very nice, say, three-foot shoulder, paved shoulder, they put these rumble strips in, and whoever's driving the machine that puts the rumble strips in can't hold a straight line. And what it forced us to do on a daily basis was to ride in the traffic lane. And absolutely crazy the whole trip um just trying to stay alive when we got to missouri we did have a bad experience in missouri with some high school kids that purposely ran me off the road and uh i went down and kind of tore my mcl but i just kept riding because there's nothing you can do about that and and so that was a bad experience as far as people but you know that can happen in anywhere any anyhow so um we have another story uh it's i can't that happened in alabama that uh i can't share with you because my wife says we're taking that one to our grave <laughs> okay but uh it was another story of yeah. encountering don't admit encountering. any crime on the show no i'm just kidding no exactly <laughs> and there was no no crime but it was a backwoods story that uh and it was actually hospitality the guy was trying to provide hospitality but we ended up in a situation that i laugh at to this day but she says don't you ever tell anybody about that so anyway you know you talk about uh, books worth of stories and occasionally i'll get people asking about that and i'm not really interested in the book thing but one thing i'm really really good about is journaling and what i'll do is i'll keep a little note pad on every trip and just jot down the day and and phrases and words to jog my memory and then when I come home I actually write it down pen and paper and uh, this is really hard to do because and this is kind of a lesson for people out there that uh, you know writing journals is hard and going back and reading them isn't that important to me but I have a granddaughter grandson now I always say I'm doing it for them, and I'm not only doing it for them, but think about what it would be like to read a handwritten journal from, say, your great-great-grandparents, people that are long gone that you never knew. And I always think that would be fascinating to read the stories of our ancestors on pen and paper. So my message to people is write it down. Even if it's not for you, somebody will be interested, regardless of how big of a or small a trip it was. Reading historical accounts just is amazing. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And there's so many small little interesting details to every day that 
when I'm touring, I totally forget about a month later even because every face, every inch of every road, everything I see is totally brand new. So to process all that over the course of months of a journey like that, it's incredibly hard to remember details. And I'll read through my old journals and see, I totally forgot about that story. I'm yeah. so glad I wrote that down. Yeah, and uh, we use warm showers every now and then. Um, you familiar with that? Yes, yes, I've used yeah. them plenty of times. Yeah, for the listeners, uh, it's the organization for bicycle tourists, and we used to host host them a lot when we lived on the border because there were a lot of world travelers that crossed into Mexico right where right where we lived. So we had a great, a huge number of of great guests there. And then when we've gone on our trips, we use them, but we tend to use them maybe once a week. Cause once again, you kind of have to organize it and make sure they're home and everything. But the, the warm showers hosts we've had over the years have, have been unbelievable. In uh, Tallahassee, Florida, there's a guy down there that runs a um, kind of a bike hostel in an old, an old uh, building that used to be a pizza restaurant right on campus there. And uh, we slept in that with cockroaches running around our heads all night. Uh, we stayed with some Mennonites in Alabama whose occupation were they ground co- fresh coffee beans and sold them. And they had to sleep in the, the shop where they ground the coffee beans, if you can imagine that smell. I mean, or I should say aroma all night long to the smell of coffee. By now, you certainly know who Bent Gate is. That's for a great reason. Bent Gate Mountaineering has been sponsoring the Adventure Sports Podcast almost from the beginning, and we really appreciate that. They've made it possible for all the great shows to continue coming your way. We want to say thanks by reminding you to go to them for your backcountry gear. If you live in Colorado, then just stop by their store in Golden. If not, go to bentgate.com. They have what you need from the latest ultralight gear to the tried and true classics for climbing, hiking, and camping, like Arcteryx, Hilleberg, Nemo, Western Mountaineering, and many more. Need advice? They have you covered there, too. Their staff are passionate adventurers who can offer help from their own experiences. Bentgate also hosts lots of events and speakers. Check out their website to see the schedule and to see all of their products. Help take care of the Adventure Sports Podcast by getting your gear from Bentgate Mountaineering. Oh, on Ragbri, I want to talk about Ragbri just for a second if you got it. Is uh, over the 30 years of Ragbri, have you ever done Ragbri? Uh, no, I actually oh. have never done it. Yeah, well, I've been invited should, a few times. Yeah, that should be a bucket list on everybody's cycle list. Um, in the early years, we went with a team called Team Plunger. And then uh, I, I've i told people, I think I've probably done more rag rides in different ways than, than anybody else, from riding a recumbent, a tandem recumbent, a road bike, hybrid, cross bike, mountain bike. We've gone with teams. We've uh, stayed in the host with hosts, we've gone in an RV, we've stayed in the registers campground, but uh, the last few years we've gone to self-contained, which is our absolute favorite way of doing it. Somebody asked us how we were doing ragbri a couple years ago, and we said, well, we're going self-contained, and they said, oh, you're baggers. 
And we said, excuse me? And they said, you carrying all your stuff? And we said, yeah. And they go, yeah, you're bagging it. And we said, oh, okay, I guess we've never heard that term before. So now I guess we're baggers, the rag bry. But rag bry over the years, it started out as just a major, major party ride. And they've kind of cleaned it up over the years. It's better than ever. But uh, in the early years, we were part of a group that would, we were at the back of the pack coming in in the dark, you know, pretty trashed. Uh, kind of grew out of that stage and remarried, and uh, my wife now and I, we don't, we still enjoy the craft beers, but uh, we don't do the party scene like we used used to. And um, the thing about Ragbri is known for is uh, every town the church ladies make pie, and they sell pie at their stands as fundraisers. And so in the early years. When we were partying and coming in late, I never saw pie on Ragbri. It was always packed up before we got into town. And uh, now, now to this day, when we go, I still see some of those old friends from the early years, and they're still at the back of the pack, and they're still partying. And I ran into them one day, and I told told them, I said, "Hey, uh, yesterday I had pie." And they're like, "You didn't have pie on Ragbri. There's no such thing as pie on Ragbri." I said, "There is. I've seen it." So we joke that now instead of <laughs> instead of coming in late and, and wasted, we we get there early and eat pie. <laughs> some pie, oh man! Yeah. No, there's nothing there's nothing better than a, a pie or a cake or something after a long bike ride, man. <laughs> <laughs> I still prefer the craft beers, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh man, pizza and beer. I mean, yeah. that, that can't be beat after a long ride, honestly. But some pie, you know, to wash it down, of course. Yeah, so you know, are you, I assume you're retired now? Uh, yeah, semi-retired. I have a little part-time job. I, I'm living in Iowa now, and and uh, I have a job. I just work a couple hours a day, but otherwise, yeah, I'm retired. My wife's still working, hoping to hoping to semi-retire here this next year. We'd like to do uh, take bigger chunks and maybe do two or three months trips at a time and. And we'd like to do a big West Coast swing. We're hoping where we do some, you know, dirt bag, dirt bagging it, car camping, biking, backpacking, a little bit of everything. Oh, man. She's never really done done the West Coast yet, so. Oh, you're in for a treat. Yeah, we'd still like for a treat. get to some other countries too. We're. I, I always say I don't have a ba- I don't have a bucket list anymore. Uh, I go by her bucket list because I, I'm really happy with the things I've done, and she she kind of got a late start on all this. So I tell her, you know, you make your bucket list, and I'll tag along. I'm good for anything. So man, that's a good attitude. Good attitude. Well, that's a good place to be. Happy with what you've accomplished, and looking forward to whatever she decides to come up with. Congratulations on. Getting to a hundred thousand miles. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. I'm hundred twenty-five to go. You maybe you missed a day or so. Maybe you got a hundred thousand already. <laughs> right, could be. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Um, you know, you you don't have a website. You're not trying to promote yourself. So, is there any way people can uh, keep up with you or get in touch? Um, I I do Facebook. Uh... It's just under my name, Craig Christensen. I do. I'm a wood carver too. And about the only thing I'm on Facebook, I do promote my wood carvings. I've got about 200 different wood carvings in an album that I like to use that to show off. Um, I do post pictures from recent trips. Nothing, no journals or anything. I just 
kind of keep it simple. I think I, I kind of am moving into that direction, just casually doing my adventures and not stressing out over trying to get sponsors or trying to get right. you know, my name out there. I, I think that definitely takes away from the experience for, for most people. Right. Uh, I appreciate you being on the show, man. That's about all the time we have today. Mm-hmm. Any any last minute uh, advice or, or insight you want to share with the listeners? One other thing, when I listen to your podcast over and over and over, and uh, one of the things that I'm sure not just me but everybody wonders is, you always wonder how how people pay for some of the mega mega adventures and. You know, sometimes it, they, they explain, you know, how they earn money while they're on the road or they'll stop for a while and get a job. And in my entire life, my wife and I talk about how it's so difficult to decide the happy medium as to being a true dirtbag. And I mean that as a term of endearment. That's a compliment. Uh, a dirtbag lifestyle versus what most people in the world do is they think, oh, we'll wait till we're retired and then we'll travel. But you know as well as I know and everybody knows that physically that, that just isn't possible. To you know, That's when you're going to end up going on a cruise ship somewhere. And I feel like my wife and I, you know, I was lucky enough to get, have a mentor when I was younger to get me started investing at a young age. And I chose a career that allowed me to do both, have a career, save some money, and travel during the summer. And yet, even without that, uh, I'm very, very glad that, you know, the whole money thing, because I worry worry a lot about these 20-somethings that are out there traveling the world and how they're living the life, and that's awesome. But I always think, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do eventually when you do your, not only your money runs out, but also your health runs out? So I guess, you know, my message is save, save your money. You can do both. All right. Great advice, man. Thank you. Yeah. Craig, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, keep up the good work, man. Yes, you too. It's my fav- absolute favorite podcast. I love living vicariously through those the, the true hardcores out there that you interview every week. So That's what we like to hear. All yeah. right. Yeah. All right, y'all. We'll get out there and uh, do something special with your life. Have some fun. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and be sure to tell all your friends about the show. Everybody deserves a little adventure. Until the next episode, get out there and try something new.